Stewart is in. Goblin in alone with Stewart back in. Scores! Over the blue line, space. Philly on near circle, back door feet. What a blocker save by Portillo! Here comes Halliday, left wing, joined by Beck. Halliday will sauce it for Beck, stick with for him. What a goal! For plenty of time and space, walking in near circle to the back end of the slot. Eber beats it, tucks it in. What a goal! Cross ice, D. St. Val has it. Back door shot, what a save! Portillo, it's loose, and another save. Right pad, he's miraculous. Welcome to our house. You're listening to the Fighting Saints Report. And we welcome you into another edition of the Fighting Saints Report. Jack Molesky joined by Jim Leitner from our own little bubbles, talking about a much bigger bubble <laughs> that is starting to work as NHL hockey is back. Last time we uh, spoke on this podcast, we were days away from the start of the qualifying rounds. Now we're a couple days into the qualifying rounds, and this is the closest that hockey is ever going to get to March Madness, where you can wake up, grab your bowl of cereal, maybe a couple hours later than a bowl of cereal, but plop yourself on a couch and then consume the next two or three meals on that same couch, barely moving, and then go to bed on that couch, wake up the next morning and do it all over again. You have 12 plus hours of hockey in a row for the next week or so. And for people that have missed this sport, it's not even overload. This is exactly what the doctor ordered. Oh, exactly. And, and you mentioned uh, watching 12 hours of hockey. That's exactly what I did on Monday. I, <laughs> I, had, the day, I had the day off and you know, it, was, it was a nice day outside, but I still couldn't, uh, couldn't get myself off the couch to go out and enjoy the nice day because I was watching hockey all day long. And uh, it, was, it really didn't even matter who was playing. It didn't matter. It, you know, it didn't matter at all who was, who was playing or what teams were going or if, if I even had a rooting interest. And I, I don't think I did have, have a rooting interest on Monday. And it was just exciting to watch hockey and, you know, watch a pretty intense level of hockey, too, with the playoffs. Yeah, the playoffs, you know, it, it, I think that was a big question mark, right, heading into this is not only will there be no fans, but you haven't played hockey in about four months. And how would the intensity level match up to what the playoffs are actually like? Because when the playoffs usually happen, it's after six, seven months of grueling hockey, 82 games, you're battered and bruised, and then you get into your most important game, seven game wars against the opponent. And it's definitely not the same level intensity as it would be if I think the season had continued. But saying that it's not exactly that far off I mean I think the players have really embraced the bubble and have just gotten right into playing the game they love and the games have been pretty intense I mean the first game in the bubble the first qualifying round game the Rangers and the Carolina Hurricanes took about eight minutes until we saw our first fight I believe so the intensity was there yeah. from the start yeah I think Vancouver had a fight right off the right off the hop too if I'm not mistaken I know there's another team out the west that had one Mm -hmm. too you know I, i've really i've enjoyed the hockey the only thing you mentioned how uh you know normally you're you start the playoffs after six or seven months of of, of action and you know so the one thing that i've kind of noticed is there have been you know a couple little hiccups here where you know the the, the flow isn't quite as smooth or oh. they're not quite as in sync both you know in terms of lines combinations and you know, individual plays, you know, they're, it's not quite a, it hasn't been quite as smooth right off the bat, but, you know, I think that's going to change real quickly. But I mean, I mean, the thing is, you know, you haven't played together for a long, for four months or, right. or, and then you go into a training camp and you, you know, then you expect to play games right off the hop. That's a, that's a difficult thing to do. Um, but, you know, the intensity I think has been really good. The hitting has been really good. Uh, it's been good quality hockey. I, I think the only thing is it's kind of like, it's kind of like at the beginning of a season where, you know, guys are still trying to get rid of their summer hockey habits a little bit. And they're, you know, they're trying to, uh, you know, to, to play a high intense level of hockey. And it, it takes a little while to do that, but, but, you know, still, those are just minor little inconveniences or minor little hiccups about the game so far. I, I think it's been, uh, very much entertaining and 
you know, uh, something that I'm, you know, I'm glued to the television set every time that I'm home and it's on. So uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to complain about little hiccups. And, you know, and then, then you turn around and you see a goal like Connor McDavid scored against the Blackhawks the other night where he went backhand top shelf, uh, unbelievable goal. And then you say, well, you know, maybe they, these guys aren't as rusty as we thought they were. Well, it's certainly not McDavid. I don't know if rust affects Connor McDavid. I don't know if that's even in his vocabulary. Um, but, yeah, that goal was amazing. Uh, Sebastian Ajo had an incredible goal last night. It would have been the goal uh, of the tournament so far had it not been for McDavid's the previous <coughs> night where he undressed Tony D'Angelo and then uh, slid a backhand in top shelf against the Rangers um, to complete that sweep. And, uh, we're, we're recording this a couple of days before you'll actually hear it. So it's going to be a little outdated when we talk about these hockey games, but, um, what we've seen so far, a lot of, a lot of close games, but a lot of high scoring games too. And I think that definitely lends itself to, uh, the idea that these teams haven't played a while together because definitely structural defense, I think comes after offense when you talk about what gels first on the restart that offensive instinct for McDavid that's never really going to go away but then setting up on the penalty kill and trying to 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 get away with shutting down Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane and Duncan Keith that takes a little bit longer so I think it makes sense why we've seen some higher scoring games than lower scoring games which is what is typical for the playoffs well yeah and you I mean we even see that uh like in the USHL where the first half of the season, it seems like there are a lot of seven, six scores or a lot of, you know, a lot of high flying offense, a lot of scoring. And then, you know, then you get around December and January and coaches start to really implement their defensive structures. And, you know, the scores start going down to three, two or four, three, and, you know, it makes a big difference. And I think you're right. I think it, it takes a while for defensive structure to really take over and, and for guys to find their legs when it comes to defensive structure. And, you know, so I think that's what's, that's what's going to happen here with the NHL too. I think that the teams that are going to have the most success are the ones that can figure it out quicker. Mm. And, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, I, I'm not going to complain. I, I like the offensive <laughs> uh, firepower. It's fun to watch and it's creative. And, you know, I think that's the ultimately what, uh, you know, what's going to, get things going and you know I've I've said many times I actually prefer you know as much as I love the intensity of playoff hockey and how you know how guys scratch and claw and battle I love that aspect of it but you know there are times where I really don't care for the you know the low scoring or the clutch and grab and all that stuff that is associated with playoff hockey and mm -hmm. uh, so I mean we don't see that as much you know here in the in the restart because guys haven't had a, an opportunity to do that. And I, I do like the wide open play, and you know, watching how, uh, you know, guys go up and down the ice without a lot of obstruction. So uh, best of both worlds, I think. Yeah. One, one thing I have found interesting so far about this restart is the, uh, the amount of penalties that have been called because um, I, I want to say it's more because I think the players are still a little rusty. So there's sloppiness. There are a lot of, there've been a lot of stick infractions that I think you normally wouldn't see, but it's also interesting because after not playing hockey so long, this is still technically playoff hockey. And that's usually when the referees swallow the whistle. So I'll be, I'll be interested to see how quickly that changes. If the referees are told to maybe not call as many penalties because it's supposed to be playoff hockey, or if it'll simply be that the players knock off the rust very quickly and then you don't see a lot of these calls but I, I feel like I have seen a lot more penalties than we usually do in playoff hockey I mean the Rangers and the Hurricanes each had seven power plays in the first game of that series so uh, that's not that's pretty atypical when it comes to playoff hockey oh no doubt about it you know and I think that's you know that's another thing that you see <clears throat> early in a regular season again you know you see referees calling a lot of penalties so you know I don't know if it's if it's rust or if that's just uh, uh, officials being a little bit over anxious and trying to make a bigger difference. But you see that a lot in the regular season. At the start of a regular season, you see a ton of penalties called uh, to kind of set the tone and kind of set a, you know, set a precedence for everything else. And then, you know, then again, you get to the second half of the season and the, the referees kind of, it kind of dwindles down. And then by the playoffs, you know, they're not calling much at all. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so, but you know, and, and that's another thing, you know, I, uh, you know, I, in my opinion, a penalty is a penalty is a penalty. And if you call it in October, you should be calling it in March or April or June. Uh, so I, I, you know, I like that consistency and I, and I don't mind a lot of penalties called You know, I think if that cleans things up and you guys, and guys don't take penalties or they know they have to, uh, play a sharper, cleaner game and don't take those penalties. I'm okay with that. And the, the playoffs right now, again, as I said, we're recording this a couple days be before um, you'll actually hear it. So we're a little outdated with the series, but as it stands right now here, Wednesday morning, we've only seen one team officially eliminated from the playoffs. That's the New York Rangers. Uh, the Carolina Hurricanes looked a lot more like the team that made it to the conference finals last playoffs than they did the team that they were this regular season. It felt like Carolina this regular season was always trying to break out and trying to become that same team that hit their stride at the right time. Maybe this is them hitting their stride at the exact right time because they did not seem like they showed much rust in this series. From the get-go, they were the better team. I believe they only trailed for a little over three minutes in the entire series. And when they're at their best – they control the puck below the circles. They're one of the best teams when it comes to Corsi. And they got some pretty good goaltending performances from not just Peter Morazic, but also James Reimer to close out the, the series. So Carolina right now, not the team to beat by any means because it's such a small sample size, but certainly a lot more dangerous after three games than I think many people expected heading into this playoff. Yeah, I think uh, they did play pretty sound structural hockey, I thought. Uh, but I think another part of that is I think uh, the Rangers are still maybe a couple years away. Uh, they're still uh, in their rebuild. And I actually think they're farther ahead in their rebuild than probably a lot of their fans would have expected. I think that's fair to say, uh, talking to a Rangers fan. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think that the Rangers are still, they're still, uh, they're still growing. They're still a young hockey team. They're still in that rebuild. And you know, good for them. I mean, they made the, they made this qualifying round. They got some playoff experience. I think that's good. Uh, but I don't think a lot of Ranger fans are going to be too overly disappointed that they're hoisting the cup this year because they weren't expecting it. Um, so I think it's a combination of two. I thought I do think, you know, you look at Carolina and they had that playoff experience from last year. I think that made a huge difference. And then, you know, on the opposite side, you see the Rangers who don't have a ton of playoff experience and they're still kind of finding their way. But uh, I was impressed by uh, Panarin. I thought he looked really good. and uh, But I do think the Rangers have a pretty bright future. It's just the uh, future's not right this season for them. And as you mentioned, it was never really in the cards for the future to be there this season. The Rangers made the, the playoffs in the bubble due to the fact that it was an extended playoffs. But they were only two points out of a playoff spot. So they were still, they were still contending. If this, if the COVID shutdown hadn't happened, but they are the first team to officially be eliminated. And uh, we, we do have a lot of other tight series right now when we're talking about it. I'm not really going to get too, too much into the actual scores because that will probably change by the time uh, the, that you are all listening to this podcast. But the Islanders have looked pretty solid against the Florida Panthers. Um, they're another team that I think if they play the right structure of hockey, they can be very frustrating for a lot of different teams in this uh, in this playoff. The Predators and Coyotes back and forth in that series after two games, and likewise for Vancouver and the Wild. And then the, the Penguins and the Canadians, that's the most lopsided series in terms of a team that was definitely a playoff team no matter what happened. And then the Canadians were so far out of the playoffs had it not been for this shutdown. But they surprised in game one. They played very strong. They took one with an overtime winner and a good performance from Carey Price. And that's the danger of a five-game series for a team like the Penguins is already it's a shortened series. Now it's just the best of three because they stole one in overtime, did the, the Canadians. So anything can really happen because of how short these series are. And Montreal is a team that definitely would not have made the playoffs that now has uh, a very legitimate chance to make it to the second round because of how good their goaltending is. Well, yeah, Gary Price is actually a, he's a world-class goaltender. And, uh, you know, you hear that all the time in a, in a short series, a goaltender can steal a series for you. And uh, I think that's what you're seeing out of Gary Price. And 
I still do think, uh, you know, Pittsburgh's probably the, the clear favorite in that series. I, I'd be surprised if they didn't come out of that. But but still, it's uh, that's the danger of these short series. And, again, you know, you look at teams, you know, how how quickly do they adjust to, to coming back? I don't know, how quickly do they adjust to the bubble? You know, build chemistry, all those kind of things. And, I mean, I think – you know, first round series is only five games. You know, it can be over in a, an instant if you don't, uh, if you blink. You know, it's, you know, in a week you can be done. And uh, so I think that's a, that's another series that I think is really interesting to watch. But I, I do think Pittsburgh is going to come out of that. But uh, but you're right. I think Kerry Price has been outstanding in that series and has given his team a chance. And, again, that's a team that's uh, still probably a little ways away from being a legitimate cup contender. Probably not this year. They're going to be a cup contender. But, you know, I, I think if you get into a series like this and you have some success, you can build on that for the following year. And, you know, I think that's what we're seeing with the Rangers. And that's something you can see with Montreal if they're in a rebuild-type situation. I think something we talked about last show or, or even the show before that was that we were a little bit um, interested to see. We, we, I think we both thought that there would be an advantage for the teams that were playing in these best of five qualifying rounds, then going into the, the next series against the team that maybe didn't play uh, as many meaningful games because it's just round robin for seeding. Um, yeah. but, but I think my mind might've switched um after that Blues Avalanche game, because of all the games in the, the last three or four days, that might have been the most intense hockey game I watched. And that one was purely the first game of a round robin that determines seeding. Nothing to do with elimination anytime soon with either of those teams. But Nazem Kadri scored with as, as close to zero on the clock as you could possibly get. Um, a, a thrilling way to end that game, a 2-1 victory for the Avalanche. But that might have been the most playoff-like hockey game that I saw through the first four days of this restart. And now I'm thinking that there might not be a huge advantage for any of these teams, even though they're playing an elimination series right now, if that's what we're going to get from these round-robin games. Yeah, I think it was .1 seconds left in the game when he scored that goal. is you know, a great goal, just crashing the net. A typical playoff-style goal. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of it's kind of hard to to say who has an advantage in this. I, I mean, I do like the round robin uh, format. It, it gives these teams, it gives the teams that know they're going to the second round, it gives them an, an opportunity to play high intensity hockey against good quality opponents. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's going to help you get prepared for the next round. I think it's better than a. It's better than say a five twelve matchup or, or whatever. I, I think it's you know you're you're playing against better teams, tougher teams. Probably looking at them, I think they're mostly all a little bit more playoff tested teams. Uh, maybe not Arizona, but you know you look at a lot of the other teams. They're they're playoff tested teams, so I think it's a way to really really get back into that. Uh, that playoff mode you know we're talking about the rangers that's a team that's not really playoff tested but you know you look at blues blues avalanche game those are two teams that are are playoff tested and you know it's going to be a good good way to go into that next round and i i, I like it I, I mean i think it's a i think it's a really good structure that they set up for this playoffs and i mean i don't think anything was going to be perfect you know by any means but i think uh you know, doing it this way, I think, is probably the best way to go about it in terms of a playoff structure. And you mentioned the five twelve. I think it's if if both or even one of either the Blackhawks or the Canadians upset the the Penguins and or Oilers, I think it's safe to say that then this is hockey's version of March Madness. Because I I looked up this stat in the last six years, the five twelve matchup in March Madness that produces the most upsets. Uh, the 12 beating the five. So if we see that in hockey as well, then this is definitely hockey's equivalent of March Madness. Yeah. And I think uh, in the NHL, I think, you know, it's probably, you're probably more likely to have an upset like that because the point differential is not that big. You know, you look at, if you think of the NCAA's uh, basketball, it's most of the five twelve is usually like a, you know, a good quality mid-major is that 12. 
and they're going against a five that's from a power five team yeah. conference. So I think that those are tendency to be a little bit more of an upset. But, you know, you, you look at uh, in the NHL, you know, the, the point difference, the standings points differential isn't really that great. So, I mean, it can happen. There's no question that uh, you can have an upset happen. And, you know, if you have a, a lower-seeded team that maybe uh, had some injuries to deal with during the regular season or, you know, just took a while to get things figured out or they made a couple of trades at the deadline to, you know, to, to boost their chances. I mean, it, it can happen. There's no question about it. It can happen, especially in a five-game series where a goaltender can steal it. It's, it's, it's great. And, you know, March Madness, I, the thing I like about March Madness, as we mentioned before, is you can get up at, get up in the morning and watch basketball from, you know, 11 o'clock until 11 o'clock, 12 straight hours if you want. And same thing here with actually this first week. And before we take our, our first break and get into our interview with a, uh, a Saint for Life Christian Fry, who's one of the newer uh, additions to the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders staff, two Fighting Saints actually, Evan Jansen, you heard him on last week's podcast, have to get in a little bit to the uh, Saints for Life in the NHL bubble. And by our count, it's six of them. You have two on the Edmonton Oilers in William Lagason, who hasn't played a game yet, and then Matt Benning. Uh, then Eric Robinson for the Blue Jackets, tied up in their series with Toronto after two games. Mike Matheson with Florida. Uh, Johnny Goudreau with the Calgary Flames and Carson Kuhlman with the Boston Bruins. Uh, Kuhlman only played one game so far up till this point. Again, they're in the round robin stage, so there's more separation between when they play one game versus the other. Um, but Johnny Goudreau off to a good start. The Flames through three games are up 2-1 in that series, and, and Johnny has three points. And, um, uh, Calgary and Calgary and Johnny Goudreau, I think, both this season, lower um, production than their expectations were, but it seems like the Flames have found uh, pretty good footing to begin this bubble life, and three points in three games is definitely not a bad start at all for Johnny Hockey. Yeah, he's a guy who's, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the structure aspect of it. You know, he's a guy who you give him a little bit of time and space, he's going to take advantage of it. And, you know, like we mentioned earlier, if these teams don't have their structures figured out, their defensive structures figured out just quite yet, he's the kind of guy who's going to find holes, holes in the defense and put the puck in the back of the net. So, uh, yeah, he's definitely one of those guys who starts out strong usually because because the defense isn't, isn't quite there yet. Um, but we'll see how long that that continues. And normally, uh, Winnipeg's a little bit more of a defensive structure uh, team that that should be a little bit more lockdown than it has been. But but yeah, he's been got off to a good start, and uh, it's exciting to watch. And right now, Carson Kuhlman is guaranteed to play in the the first round of the playoffs when it starts a best of seven series because the Bruins were one of the top four seeds. Um, Calgary looking good through three games. And then the Blue Jackets with Eric Robinson uh, tied 1-1 after two games in that series. Both of the defensemen on the Oilers 1-1 after two games there. Uh, Mike Matheson and Florida really the only one that seems to be at a pretty high risk of exiting before the best of seven starts as the Panthers down two games to nothing against the Islanders. And at the time we're recording this, we've got about 40 minutes till the puck drops on game three of that series, the Islanders a chance to eliminate the Florida Panthers. So um, it'd be tough to see one of the, the fighting saints alumni go out early, but there are still a decent amount where we could see one of the fighting saints raise the Stanley cup at the end of this bubble. Yeah, I think, uh, I think the Panthers are another one of those teams that's still a little bit of ways away. Uh, Joel Quenville's down there doing a nice job uh, coaching them, and he's got a great track record of success with the Blackhawks. Um, I think it's just – I think they're still a little bit of ways away. and We'll see. I wouldn't be surprised if they made uh, – whenever this offseason starts, I, I would be surprised if they made another big uh, key free agent acquisition and, and uh, bolster that lineup and – uh, but I think that's a team that could be, uh, could be, uh, you know, an interesting to want, one to watch in the next two or three years. Yeah, and uh, right now the the bubble, as we uh, again are recording this a couple of days before you'll hear it, but it's in full swing. The, the last week has just been hockey, hockey, hockey from wall to wall. 
uh, 12 to 12 at night, essentially, is what you're getting for your hockey schedule. So it's been great to watch. It's been amazing to have this sport back on top of all the other sports that are slowly making their comeback. Uh, and we'll be following this closely, of course. If you want to follow along specifically for your favorite Fighting Saint players, visit DubuqueFightingSaints.com um, and click on our NHL Saint for Life hub. We have daily updates on what each player is doing in their respective series and where their teams are at. Uh, and now speaking of Saints for Life, a great interview with the newest member of the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders staff. It's Christian Fry, the new goaltender coach for Cedar Rapids. And we welcome our next guest onto the podcast, a Saint for Life, Christian Fry, former goaltender for the Fighting Saints, and now a goaltender coach for rival Cedar Rapids. Christian, do you expect to be booed when you come back to Mystique Community Center? <laughs> yeah, 100%. I wouldn't expect anything less from Dubuque's, uh, Dubuque's fans. You know, they, they, uh, they're, really, uh, they're really something. They're very passionate. So I, I expect to be booed if I'm, if I'm back there. Well, we do want to congratulate you on the new position and thank you for joining the show here today. We'll get into that in a little bit, but first and foremost, I think hockey and sports in general have taken a back seat the last three or four months, but what have you been doing in that time, maybe getting ready for the next season or just trying to stay active in any way? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm actually down here in Texas, so um, we've been, we actually opened up a little bit earlier than most people. Um, but uh, in, the, in a couple months in quarantine, I've just been, you know, trying to get some workouts in, going on walks, everything like that, kind of appreciating the, the downtime, I guess you could say. And then um, doing a lot of online stuff, um, obviously scouting guys for next year for, you know, Cedar Rapids and Lone Star. And then, um, you know, doing some Zoom meetings, trying to make sure that we're not just, uh, you know, a, a lot of guys want to make sure that they're keeping their physical skills sharp, but we got to make sure we keep our mental skills sharp as well, right? Reading the game, especially as goaltenders, we read the game, we got to be two steps ahead. So making sure we're watching hockey, making sure we're breaking down some things, stuff like that. You mentioned the Cedar Rapids position. That news came out a little less than a month ago. Take us through that process, how you wound up grabbing that job with the Rough Riders. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I know that they, uh, they had an opening. Um, Obviously, uh, Evan Jansen got the assistant coaching role, and we've stayed in really close contact since, you know, we played together in Dubuque. We were always pretty close there, and um, he got the role there, and he was mentioning to me that uh, he knew that they didn't have a goalie coach and brought my name up to Carlson, and, you know, Carlson gave me a call the next day, you know, went through a couple references, old coaches at Ohio State, stuff like that, and, um, you know, be, being two years – out of retirement from playing hockey I didn't by no means I expect to get a USHL job mm -hmm. um, but it's it's something I really appreciate it's, it's a really good chance opportunity. What excites you most about being able to come back and coach in the league that you played so many years in? Well I, I think it's just you know you, you you look at the USHL and you're like this is the best junior league in North America so the opportunities to coach the top kids in North America in the future you know, there's stars in the USHL, but stars in Division One, stars in the NHL, everything like that. You know, that league, the USHL produces all that stuff. So being able to work with the best and then, you know, obviously play against my former team um, is uh, just really exciting. You mentioned you're fairly fresh out of playing the sport of hockey, but you did play multiple years in the USHL. How much do you think that experience will help you, even though you might be inexperienced as a coach? You do have a lot of experience in the league you're coaching in. Yeah, 100 um, percent. I like to say, you know, like I, I've I've seen a lot of stuff in the USHL. And by that, I mean, I've I've been traded. I've been on bad teams. I've been on phenomenal teams. Um, I've had teams that aren't close with each other, close that are teams that are super tight knit. Um, so I've I've seen a lot in the USHL, probably more than most goalies. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've been traded more than I would like to admit. So um, I've been around the league. I kind of understand how things work. And I think that that's something that uh, helps a lot. You know, I've had a lot of ups and downs and, you know, it's guys, guys usually come into the league and they've been dominating at their level. That's why they make this league. And then you realize that, Hey, this isn't the same thing I've been playing, right? This is a step up. Everybody is a superstar in this league. So we got to make sure that we, uh, we step up to the plate and that's something I struggled with. Um, but then ultimately, you know, found success afterwards. So it's, 
I think that I can uh, help goalies kind of unlock that potential. In talking with former USHL players, they always mention the the huge developmental curve on the ice, but they also talk a lot about the developmental curve off the ice. If you were breaking it down by a percentage, how much do you think is the percentage of development off the ice versus on the ice as a player in the USHL? Um, I, I don't know if I could give you a percentage, but I definitely say it's more important. Off the ice is more important because everyone knows that you make it to this league because you have the skills on the ice, but to succeed in this league and to dominate in this league and to win this league, you have to, you have to figure everything else out off the ice. And that's what will carry you onto college and professional as well. So I'd say, like you mentioned, developing your skills off the ice, those mentality, the mentality and the mental skills off the ice is the most important thing and the biggest adjustment. And it's also the hardest thing to do. Absolutely. As a, as a goalie coach, it's kind of a more of that, that niche coach that, um, you know, the assistant coaches, they, they have their feet and, and hands in a little different uh, multiple areas. The goalie coach are focused on the goalies. So as you've gone through this off season, what have you done to kind of get ready for coaching the next round of goalies in Cedar Rapids? Um, I don't think it's anything special, right? I know um, you guys had Matt Miller as your goalie coach for a long time. And I took, I took a lot of things that he said and I've adapted into my, uh, in, into my coaching as well. And one thing that he said that always sticks with me is, you know, you see these NHL guys make these highlight reel saves and make these unbelievable backdoor saves and stuff like that. But they're the best in the world at doing the little things, at doing the, the, the little tee pushes, the little shuffles, watching the puck in, doing like the most basic things that you learn when you're 9, 10, 11 years old. Mm -hmm. They're the best in the world at doing those things. And then they, that translates to a lot of their, um, you know, incredible athleticism and incredible saves that they see. It's because they're doing every little thing right. And then that translates into those huge, seas, huge saves you see on SportsCenter. Playing in the USHL and going through that development process, what are a couple of the biggest things that it, uh, adjustments rather as a goalie that you had to make at the USHL level? Yeah, for sure. I think, I think one thing that I struggled with a lot off the start was patience. Um, you know, I, I always, I was a guy that coming out through AAA and minor leagues and stuff like that, I always relied on my athleticism and that always, you know, that always got me to the place I needed to be. Um, so I always wanted to make sure that, you know, having that patience, I, I was a guy that would slide around a lot and not stay on my feet as much. Mm -hmm. So having that patience to make sure that you're not taking yourself out of position and giving the shooter more net. Cause the more, the more you move, the more net that you're giving the shooter, right? So Make sure you're making them make the first move. You're not moving too early and you're just reacting into things. Mm -hmm. And then looking at, I guess, the season and the uncertainty, what have you been doing to, to I guess, I'm asking everyone, what is the thought process in what happens if the season starts in two months? What happens if the season starts in four months? I mean, have you even been thinking about that or is it just trying to take it a week at a time? Well, I, I, I think it's um... – Take it, just trying to take it a week at a time, to be honest with you. Whether it starts in two months or it starts in four months, that doesn't really change a lot of my mentality as a goalie coach, right? Because I want to make sure my guys are always ready and ready to go no matter what, right? So it doesn't, it's not like, hey, we're doing different things because the season's starting in four months, right? We just get more time to develop in the summer. USHL, you played for Des Moines, Tri-City, and then Dubuque, uh, those three teams. Overall, if you were trying to kind of bring up a, a brief synopsis of your USHL experience, how would you sum it up for people? Um, well, I think we touched on it earlier. I've been, I've been traded a little too much, more times than I'd like to admit. But, um, you know, Des Moines and Tri-City, I don't blame them at all. You know, it's, it's a really good spot, obviously. It's a great place to play. I know Tri-City has had a lot of success recently. Um, but uh, so Des Moines and Tri-City – I, uh, that was my earlier career, earlier years in the USHL. And that's when I kind of struggled. I struggled with the mental part of things, um, understanding the game, reading the game and still just relying on my athleticism. So I struggled in those two places. And then as, as soon as I got to Dubuque, um, it was kind of a bit of a culture change for me, honestly. Um, the team was really tight, obviously head coach Jim Montgomery was there, um, with a great support staff and, uh, it was just like a bit of a culture change for me and it kind of made me change the way I looked at the game and thought the game. Um, and then obviously that summer I went home, came back and um, 
it was, uh, you know, we won the league that year and then it was, uh, it, it was, you know, off and flying for there for me, for my career. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I definitely struggled my first two years in Des Moines and Tri-City. That 12-13 season when you were traded from Tri-City to Dubuque, had you played that Dubuque team before you made that trade? Did you know exactly what you were getting yourself into with that team? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, 100%. I remember I was in Tri-City, and uh, we played Dubuque the first game of the season, actually. Um, and uh, I think we actually lost 3-2 to two that game. Um, I played really well, though. I remember I was really happy with that one. Um, but, uh, you know, I loved coming to Dubuque to play. I didn't really come that often, obviously, but I loved coming to play. And uh, I remember all the guys on the team were giving me such a hard time because I think uh, Smatula was our leading scorer that that year. And there was a, uh, I think on Smat's profile picture, there was a, it was him scoring on me. So, and he didn't even know it was me. It was just there. So he gave me a pretty good uh, razzing about that whenever I got in. But uh, um, yeah, it was, it was, I knew exactly what I was getting into. You mentioned the the culture change, and another thing you talked about was was how tight knit that group was. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that was a main factor in the team making the run they did and ultimately winning it all? Yeah, a hundred percent. I know for for me personally, I've had coaches throughout the years talk to me and be like, "Hey, that team you had in twelve thirteen in Dubuque, like, what was your guy's secret? Like, let like because that was honestly probably one of the one of the best teams I've ever played on." Right. So he was like, they're like, what's, what's your guy's secret? Because you guys, like every single person from that team went on and had success in division one and professionally. Um, and we, we were so tight knit that it was just like, we felt like nothing could stop us to be honest with you. Like every, every night we were going out, we were like, unless we just are terrible tonight, we're going to come home with two points. So I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's, really hard to emulate and really no one can emulate that type of thing. It's just a lot of personalities that, that stuck together, but uh, it was a hundred percent the reason we had such success that year. Another reason that's been brought up by, to me by a lot of former players is the practices. Do you remember the practices being incredibly intense that year at Dubuque? Yeah. And that's, that's part of the culture change that I, that I, I really liked when I got to Dubuque was every single day it's, there's no days off, right? Every single day you're bringing your best. Every single time we're on the ice, we're focusing on something to get better at, right? And that's something I bring into my coaching philosophy as well. It's like if, if we're on the ice every single day or every single time we're on the ice, if we can get 1% better, then every time we're on the ice, we're getting 1% better. You know, in, in a week or two weeks, we're, we're getting 5 10%. It's like that's, that's unbelievable. So if we can strive to get 1% better every single day, which is what I think Monty pushed us towards, mm-hmm. then we're, by the, from the start of the season to the end of the season, it's a completely different team. It's an obvious question. It might even be cliche, but I feel like I have to ask it because you have won the Clark Cup. That final game against Fargo, when that goal goes in, what's the immediate feeling like? And, and what was the overall feeling from that team knowing they accomplished something so great? Well, everyone knew that team was, you know, we, we all knew that team was special and we were going to do something special that year. Um, but I didn't even like, honestly, right as it went in, I was like, I didn't even know what was going on. Like, I know Frankie tucked it in, um, Frankie tucked it in on his backhand there. And I remember thinking I didn't have the best view from it. And I was like, did that go in? And then everyone just started piling over the bench. I, I just, I don't know. It was just so surreal. I, I didn't go into that year expecting to be on Dubuque in the first place and then winning the Anderson and the Clark cup that year. But I just, you know, obviously it was just like a surreal feeling and it's, it felt like it was uh, like a high that you couldn't come down from, you know, from, from that point on and even bringing it back on the bus. Cause it was in Fargo. So it was about a 10 hour bus ride back. And it was just like, man, this is, this is incredible. How does it get any better than that? I talked to Evan Jansen a, a couple weeks ago, and he said that he hopped off the bench and went immediately for Frankie. Um, he said some guys went immediately for the goaltender. Do you, if you're on the bench in a game, do you go and congratulate the goalie first, or do you congratulate the game-winning goal scorer? I think I went. I think I went right to the goal scorer because I think that's where the majority of guys went. But then I was me and Art. Me and Art and I were very close. Um, we had a really good relationship. Um, so I think right after I went in there, I was just like me and Art just like 
Brewers like took a second and were like, dude, what the hell just happened? <laughs> you know, so it was, it was kind of like, dude, we did it. Like, this is awesome. And uh, yeah, I think right after I went to the pile, I just went and talked to Artie for a little bit. I've always noticed in hockey games that some guys go to the goal score, some guys go to the goalie. Do you know what makes that decision or is it just random selection at that point? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it's just like appreciation for like what happened in the game. You know, if your goalie made a couple huge saves like Artie did to, uh, to, to win the game for you, you're like, Oh my God, like, you know, you bailed us out of this situation. Obviously the goal scorer is going to get 70% of the love, a lot of the love, but there's the, I'd say more so like a couple defensemen come up and they're like, Hey, thanks for bailing me out. <laughs> you know, cause you know, obviously defensemen and goalies have a bit of a closer bond. Uh, I see the jersey hanging up behind you, so we have to talk a little bit about the the Ohio State years. But after Dubuque, it was right to Ohio State, four years with the Buckeyes. What was the experience like at Ohio State for you? Well, it was it was such a good experience. It was a, it was unique, and I don't really know anyone else who has kind of gone through the experience that I have. Um, obviously, halfway through the year, I was with Dubuque when Matt Shaw was the head coach. Halfway through the year, Ohio State offered me because one of their goalies left, and um, you know it was an opportunity that I couldn't, you know, pass up. So I, uh, I went in at Christmas and didn't expect to find the success that I did right away in college, but I found the transition from USHL to division one was really smooth. I thought it was going to be a little bit harder than it was, but it was really smooth. And I had a great time at Ohio state. I like a lot of the guys, you know, I still keep in touch with a couple guys. Um, and the third goalie on our team was actually the one of the groomsmen at my wedding. So um, it, it was a really, really good experience. You got to Ohio State, I feel like, right when the Buckeyes hockey program really started to take mm -hmm. off. And it also felt like right when the Big Ten started to make a name for itself. Penn State was recently added to that league before you got there. They burst onto the scene. Minnesota and Michigan have always been good. But then the Buckeyes and Michigan State coming up as well. Mm -hmm. What was it like playing in a league that seemed to just – beat each other up every single weekend yeah it was that was incredible you know because obviously I committed to Ohio State and uh when I was still in Dubuque and I was like you know I'm gonna go in at Christmas and I'm gonna be seeing playing time right away and it's like you look at the schedule and it's like all these teams you see that are like legendary when you're a kid it's like okay we play Michigan State one weekend Michigan the next Wisconsin <laughs> the weekend after it's like holy crap man like I'm in the USHL right now trying to just win games for my junior club and next thing I know I'm playing in a sold-out barn against Wisconsin with 16,000 people where they you know they all have white jerseys on and stuff like that it's like what just what just happened to me what happened to my career so I think it really helped me though mm -hmm. because it was you know like you don't have time to sit around and think about it you're just thrust into the spotlight there and it's like hey sink or swim right now you know so I think that was really cool. And the Big Ten was awesome that year. I know that, like, Wisconsin was, like, a top ten. Minnesota was number one in the country. Michigan was a top ten. It was it was a really good league. You mentioned the, the Cole Center being incredible when it's sold out. What were a couple of your favorite places to go play on the road in the Big Ten? Because there are a lot of great venues, as you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, honestly, every every venue in the Big Ten is awesome. Like, that's that's one thing that I'm really privileged to, to see and experience, you know, Ohio State, Notre Dame, Penn State, Michigan. There, there are so many good places. I think that my favorite spot was, um, like you said, the Cole Center in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. just because my freshman year, those, they were like a top 10 team. We went in, I played really well. We won three to one and it was in front of a sold out crowd, you know, 15, 16,000 people. And it's like, you know, like I, I was looking around, it's like, man, I was in Dubuque with, you know, 4,000 people. And it was crazy in Dubuque, but it's like, this is a whole nother level, you know? So um, Wisconsin's incredible. Penn State was a really fun place to play at. Um, I remember one time in Minnesota, it was a really cool experience because um, I kind of like to play the villain a little bit, you know, obviously being a goalie, you kind of deny people what they want. Um, I remember one time I uh, got my helmet knocked off and I kind of threw it off a little bit too. And I think there was like 10, 11,000 people there. They were all booing me. It felt like they were all right in my ear. And I was like, oh, this is such a cool experience. So that was uh, definitely another memorable time. You know, the coaches yelling at me and stuff like that. I was like, I don't know, it's, it's fun to do that type of stuff. Another four years at Ohio State, incredible experiences throughout those four years. Do you have one or two moments that, that really stick out to you when you think back to those college years? Yeah, I mean, 
there's not like one or two moments that are like, this is the thing I remember. It's kind of like I was talking about. It was just like winning in Wisconsin when it sold out in Minnesota with everyone booing me, you know, like Penn state when they were, they got to number one in the, uh, in the nation mm-hmm. for a weekend for the first time ever. And it was a new program. I think it was my junior year. So their third year of being a division one program. So it's a big deal there and their fans are awesome. So their place was pumped and crowded and packed. And um, we went in there and we swept them in back-to-back games. And uh, that was just something that was really cool to, uh, to experience. And I mean, every, every place in the big 10 is a special experience because it's, there's so many fans and they're so passionate about it too. So it's, it's not just like one or two moments that I definitely remember. It's just the entirety of it, I guess. Well, Christian, we thank you for joining us. Just a couple more questions for you today as we'll round back to the the most recent news in your life with the coaching gig at Cedar Rapids. And um, the, the first question for you here to kind of wrap things up is you did spend a couple years in minor hockey, but when did you start making that decision in your head that, hey, coaching might be the next step for me? Well, I've always really enjoyed coaching. Um, ever since I was my probably my second year, I think, in, in the USHL, so when I was in Tri-City, starting in that summer um, – I started to work with a goalie coach down here, um, Thomas Spear, actually, he's with Calgary now. Um, and I, I, I started to work with him. And then the summer after that, I picked up a lot of what he was saying. And uh, then I, I was like, I would work for him a little bit in the summer just to kind of, you know, I had no money to help pay for lessons and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I worked for him, coach younger kids, and I really enjoyed it. And everything that I teach is basically from him. And I knew, so I, I was coaching for like four or five years in the summers before I uh, retired. And then right as I retired, I, I knew like it's time to come home, do some goalie coaching and kind of settle down a little bit more. And um, it's really just clicked for me, honestly. Like I, I've really enjoyed it as a job. I've really enjoyed uh, my time doing it. It's accelerated at such a pace that, you know, a year and a half ago when I retired or two years ago when I retired, I didn't expect to be at the point where I am now, but like I said, I'm just super grateful for all the opportunities I've been given. You mentioned drawing a lot of what you teach from from Coach Spears. Who are a couple other uh, coaches that you've had that you feel yourself drawing some words of wisdom from? Yeah, like I still talk to uh, Matt Miller all the time. You know, I make sure I, you know, at least call him probably once every other week. He's probably honestly annoyed with how much I call him, <laughs> but um, I just want to make sure, you know, like I'm, he's one of the best goalie coaches I've ever worked with and I've ever seen. Um, so I want to make sure I'm picking his brain as much as possible and just annoying the crap out of him. Obviously, Thomas Spear, who's out in Calgary, and um, Michigan State's assistant coach, you know, Joe Exter has been a big influence on my life. And he's he's helped me a lot throughout my career as well and my coaching career as well. So those are probably the three guys I kind of uh, still stay in contact with a lot and draw a lot of my um, coaching from. Well, Christian, we look forward to following your now coaching career with the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders. We'll grudgingly admit that we are uh, the Fighting Saints fans, I think, would say they're proud of you, even though it is Cedar Rapids. Uh, But thank you very much for taking the time today. And we look forward to hopefully your return to the Mystique Community Ice Center at some point this season. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the booze, too. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm sure there'll be some. (laughs) Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And we hope you enjoyed that interview with the goaltending coach for the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders, Christian Fry, a former fighting saint, a former Ohio State Buckeye, and now part of the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders. Two former fighting saints in the last month and a half have been hired by Mark Carlson and the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders, Evan Jansen, one of the assistant coaches for Cedar Rapids. Uh, for this upcoming season. We're going to drag it right back to the NHL as that's where the majority of hockey news has been coming for the last week, week and a half. Um, And we're going to dive into the NHL's bubble for a little bit and and just talk about what it's been like. And first of all, I think the biggest thing to talk about is that the bubble has been incredibly successful. Um, The NHL has released weekly updates on their COVID testing And last time I checked, it was over 8,000 tests within the last two weeks, and there was not a single positive. So that is a big, big uh, positive sign for the bubble being the key to bringing sports back, at least right now. Um, Is Rob Manford listening to this at all? I Uh, I, I don't know if we've gotten him to subscribe yet, but maybe I'll drop him a DM on Twitter once this episode is over. 
Yeah, that might not be a bad idea, or the NFL, actually. Uh, Rob Manfred is the commissioner of baseball, um, and uh, they were considering a bubble at the beginning of their restart and didn't, and now you've had a couple of uh, disastrous issues with the St. Louis Cardinals and uh, Miami Marlins. But uh, but baseball aside, I, I think they are the NHL is doing a great job with the bubble, you know, and you mentioned all the negative tests. I mean, that's they, they've done a great job of shielding everybody. And then it's the perfect word for it is the bubble. They're in a, they're in a pretty secure area where they're not uh, having contact much with the outside world and preventing that coronavirus from coming in. They're playing in Montreal or in uh, Toronto and Edmonton. Uh, so up in Canada where the, the number of cases isn't nearly as high as it is down here in the United States. So uh Great job for the NHL. I mean, I think they've done it. They've shown how it can be done and that it can be successful. And, you know, I think the NBA is in a similar situation. They, they don't have as many uh, issues down there in Florida. Uh, so the bubble is something that definitely worked. And not only has it been working uh, in terms of limiting coronavirus, but I think it's at least in the NHL, it's also been working for the players. Uh, There are a lot of players that have been posting some entertaining videos on their social media. You're hearing a lot of good things about uh, the bubble just in terms of players are happy to have a place where they can just play hockey and really focus on absolutely nothing else. I mean, even when you're in the NHL season, you're, you're going back home um, when you're, when you're, playing home games, you're, you're living at your own home, you're traveling a little bit more. There's other stuff that you're focusing on. The bubble is like a hockey haven where there is nothing else going on other than NHL hockey for the lucky teams for the next couple months. And I think players are really enjoying the fact that they don't have any other responsibilities right now. Yeah. And the, the interesting comment that I heard was, uh, and I can't remember where I heard it. I've been watching so much hockey the last couple of days, but um, one of the players mentioned that it kind of feels like, you know, when you're eight years old and you go off to a tournament and you're in a hotel where, you know, we have 15 other teams and uh, youth hockey teams, and they're all getting, getting along, playing and having fun. And, you know, it just, it's all about hockey. Kind of like, you know, what they do with the, with the Little League World Series every summer. You know, they have these, uh, basically they have dorms where all the kids hang out and and play together. And, you know, it's, you know, just isolated from the rest of the world. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's what I think has been really cool about it is you hear those stories where, you know, the the players aren't complaining about being in the bubble. They're really embracing it. And, you know, I've heard some stories from the NBA where they're kind of, their players down there were kind of, you know, uh, complaining about circumstances or complaining about the lack of freedom or whatever, and which is, I guess, is kind of understandable. But it it's really neat to see the NHL guys embrace this and have fun with it and and uh, rediscover that uh, I guess inner child or that kid, that eight year old kid who had so much fun at a tournament uh, when he was little. And it's again, that's that's what's so refreshing about this whole restart and. You know, it's, you know, I really enjoy the fact that these guys are embracing it and having fun and it makes it a lot easier for me to watch. You know, yeah, absolutely. And, you know when yeah, I watch, absolutely. when I watch a little bit of NBA or when I watch, you know, and hear guys complaining about the bubble or when I hear about or watch Major League Baseball and the, the announcers are only talking about, you know, the Cardinals COVID tests or the Marlins COVID tests, you know, you get sick of that. And, you know, it's nice to watch hockey where they, they talk about how they're embracing it and how much fun they're having. And it it's, it's, makes it a lot more enjoyable for me. Yeah, for sure. I think it's, it's not just the, the players are in the bubble, but when you're watching the hockey game as a fan, you're in the bubble as well because they've been so successful with limiting the coronavirus in the bubble. So there's no need to talk about it. Uh, I think you, you said earlier, maybe on this show or, or right before we started recording, is the only time you hear mention of the coronavirus on these hockey broadcasts is when they come out and say, you know, this last week, 4,000 tests, zero positive results back to the hockey game. So it, it's all yeah. positive for the NHL minus the tests. 
I mean, that's the only thing that's not positive right now in that NHL bubble, which is fantastic. Um, and I'm excited to see the entire playoffs continue to play out and, and fingers crossed that there continue to be um, no positive tests or, or they, at least if there are a couple, they can continue to minimize the effect it has. Because as you said, baseball is having their issue with multiple teams um, with not just one or two players. I mean, these are legitimate outbreaks. The Marlins played a game last night with almost no players that played the very first game of this major league baseball season. They had 18 players test positive. Uh, I think the Cardinals were up to 13 last time I checked and uh, the NBA, you haven't heard many positive tests. They're also doing a bubble. They're doing a good job there, but I think the NBA players, like you said, were a lot more outspoken on social media in terms of not necessarily being happy with uh, being in a bubble or the quality of the bubble or whatever it may be. Uh, but when it comes to the NHL, it's playoff hockey. That's the most important thing. And you can be sleeping on a cot in a Motel 6 or uh, at the Ritz in a five-star uh, king bed. It doesn't really matter. I think they're focused on what's happening on the ice, and that's a great thing to see. Oh, no doubt about it. And I, th I think, you know, the, the, one, the one thing I heard about the, the COVID is uh, in the, the Maple Leafs game, a guy got, had to go to the hospital. And... Uh, immediately one of the commentators said, well, you know, obviously he's leaving the bubble, you know, the, the NHL bubble and he's going to the hospital, but he said, you know, the, the, the hospital in Toronto is basically like a bubble itself. Mm -hmm. And th that these guys are, if, if they have to go to the hospital, um, it's, they're leaving the bubble, but it's just as safe as the bubble. And, you know, that was an aspect that I really hadn't thought much about. Um, during this whole process, you know, what if, geez, what if someone does has, does have to go to the hospital or just get checked out or whatever. Uh, but it sounds like that's equally as safe as being in the bubble. And, you know, I'm sure he'll be monitored for a little while after when he gets back into the bubble. Uh, but it, again, it's, it's just the focus is on hockey and that's really where it should be when you're talking about the playoffs. And, um, you know, it, it is so nice to have, you know, the, the storylines are all about hockey. They're all about, you know, the storylines are as if the, the COVID never happened. You know, if you listen to Pierre Maguire uh, between the glass, you know, his stories are all about the same kind of stories that we had before we even heard about COVID. And uh, that's what's refreshing. And that's what I think a lot of sports fans really wanted to get back to, you know, when all this started. And it's, a bigger sense of normalcy right now than in any other sport. Because like I said, they're all, everybody else is talking about COVID and really in the NHL, they're not. Yeah. And uh, with the four month shutdown from almost any sports, the, the talk was, well, this is when we need sports because sports are an escape from the, the dreary everyday world for the most part. And you didn't have that escape. And it's nice to, even though there's still a lot to figure out with coronavirus and especially in the United States, there are still big steps needed to, to be taken before we get back to any sense of normalcy. It is nice to have that escape where if you're watching sports, you're not really hearing about it anymore. And that's not necessarily saying that you're ignoring what's going on. It's just that yeah. everyone needs a break and you can recognize yeah. that there's still an issue after you watch your hockey game, but it is really nice to just turn on the TV, watch sports and not think about anything else for at least a little bit. But, you know, I'll, I'll ask you this. If you watch a baseball game, is it really an escape from COVID? Or, you know, if you watch, uh, you know, someone's talking about college football, is that really an escape from COVID? When I'm right watching, now, when I'm I watching, would say no. Yeah, I, I don't know. When I'm watching the Yankees, the crack of Aaron Judge's bat is too loud for, for the announcers <laughs> to talk over. So, true. Uh, at least that's that. true. <laughs> but, I mean – you know what I'm saying, though. I mean, yeah. you're talking about um, so many times. You know, you watch a ball game, and you know, you want to, you just want to watch a ball game. You know, but then you, you have to talk about how the Marlins are doing. You have to talk about how the Cardinals are doing, and you know, it's you know, you, you get that escape for a little bit, and then you you go back to talking about COVID. And you know, and that's that's why you know, I, I think that's why I'm really enjoying the the NHL is that they're not really talking about it because they don't have to. Mm -hmm. And the NHL doing a great job. And again, plenty of fighting saints in the tournament right now. We'll continue to monitor the status of each and every one of them and see how many saints alumni can move on to the 
first round of the NHL playoffs. Again, right now still in the round-robin stages and the qualifying round. Uh, before we sign off here, um, some news coming out of newer Fighting Saints uh, in terms of college commitments. And uh, uh, one player that we just saw at Fighting Saints main camp, another player that didn't make main camp this year, um, but was at Fighting Saints main camp last season, committed <laughs> to college, and that would be Paxton Geisel uh, from the Dallas Stars 16U elite team that was uh, had three players drafted by the Fighting Saints this season. He announced his commitment, his verbal commitment to uh, Denver. And then Declan Lonane, who was a defenseman who was at Fighting Saints main camp last year and did not make the trip this year, he announced his commitment to Providence. So always nice to see some players making their verbal commitments. Um, and that's even nicer if they can get it up to get up to the Fighting Saints rather. And then they have that little colored logo by their name on the line chart. Uh, but two great programs that both of these players committed to, no doubt about it. No doubt. And, you know, you're talking about both these guys are only 16 years old. Uh, Geisel is a guy, like you said, he was just drafted in the Futures draft this season. And uh, Lonane was drafted in the Futures draft last season. But those are guys that are probably still a little bit of ways away from, from coming to Dubuque. Uh, but it's always kind of cool to see those guys get their college commitments out of the way. And, you know, now they can focus on, you know, focus on getting better and, and preparing for that, the ultimately the day when they get to the, the NCAA division one level. And, uh, but the thing about these guys who commit early, I think it gives them an opportunity to build relationships with those programs and, you know, they can kind of track them and follow them and, and help them, uh, in their development, you know, obviously it's not a lot of hands-on stuff, but there's communication that goes back and forth and they can talk about what, you know, what they need to do to get to the next level. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited about both of these players. I think they're both going to be uh, outstanding college hockey players in the long run. And again, you mentioned two really good programs. Denver has been an elite program uh, in the National Collegiate Hockey the conference for the last several years and, and Providence is a, a big time program in, in hockey East. So uh, anytime you have a player or players who commit to programs like that, it's, it speaks a lot for your program and it speaks a lot for the scouting staff that they were able to identify these guys for Dubuque. And some of the, the young players that Dubuque has in their pipeline are already on their team already. I mean, you have a Stephen Halliday who's committed to North Dakota, Hobie Hedquist, also committed to North Dakota. Kenny Connors committed to UMass Amherst, who really in the last couple years uh, has jumped back onto the map um, in college hockey. And then a lot of young players with a ton of talent. Uh, Max Montez, one that can commit now. He, he has the same timetable as the uh, two that just committed last weekend. So likely he will make his announcement soon. Connor Kurth is committed to Minnesota. All these young players that Dubuque really hasn't seen much of at the, the USHL level have these major college commitments. And that in and of itself, sure, it's not a guarantee that the player is going to be amazing, but we've said it before. Oftentimes a Denver, a North Dakota, a Minnesota, they're, they're not going to make mistakes with the players. <clears throat> They've been doing it well for a long time. So that usually is a very good sign to dictate how well this player is going to develop and how good the player is going to be in a couple of years. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, those, a lot of those programs that you mentioned, they have a lot of resources and uh, they're very, very attractive schools to prospects. Um, a lot of those, a lot of times you, you take one visit to those schools and you're pretty much sold. Uh, so I, they really, the, those programs get the pick of the litter. You know, they get the, they get the top prospects all the time. And, you know, so to have, uh, have young men committed to schools like that speaks a lot for, again, I think speaks a lot for Callie Larson and the staff that he does and, and his staff in, in, uh, in identifying high-end talent and, and for the Fighting Saints and, and, and ultimately getting him to Dubuque to play. So I think it's, and again, the USHL is a huge part in that process. And I think a lot of times these uh, NCAA programs really prefer that their players go to the USHL because it's a really good finishing school for, uh, for the college hockey. 
two great commitments, Paxton Geisel to Denver, Declan Lonane to Providence and the Fighting Saints, uh, their farm system, if you will, continuing to get stronger with those commitments. It'll be uh, great to follow the progress of both of those players in the coming years and hopefully see them uh, wind up in Dubuque in just a few short seasons. Plenty of hockey now. I think we can officially say at least the, the way the NHL bubble has gone in the first full week now um, that it has made hockey seem to be back for, for real for the long run. So we're excited to continue to watch that and continue to give you updates on the USHL season as we get them. Hopefully there's fighting Saints hockey back sooner rather than later. But for the time being, we thank Christian Fry for joining the show. And as always, uh, Jim Leitner, my co-host, will be talking more hockey here in the coming days. Jim, get back to your couch. I know you got a lot of watching left to do. Yeah, I got about 20 minutes before the action starts, so I'm going to have to grab a quick uh, quick bite to eat, and then uh, it'll be couch for the rest of the day. There you go. Don't pull anything trying to get up after a long day of walking. <laughs>